I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design with designer Anel Gandelman, former student of the New School of Interior Design with a degree in fine art from Parsons School of Design and a certificate in American art and antiques from Sotheby's. I bet you know where we're going with this one. Yep, art and design. We talk about it quite a bit. I, I think it's important to cover this subject for a number of reasons. First of all, I love it. And in my opinion, in my experience, designers tend to shy away from fine art, antiques, and the perceived high expense of such endeavors in design. Why? Well, because of cost, overall percentage of the design budget, lack of quality control, delivery issues, installation issues. But the main reason, I suspect, is due to a lack of comfort with the idea that there is rarity to this and an inability to circle back and return the product if it doesn't fit perfectly. But think about it this way. Art and antiques can be woven into design concepts in so many ways that it can raise the level of design exponentially. I know you know this. You can use art as a feature, accessory, complementary item, balance to low in the high-low scenario. You can use antiques to balance a modern or contemporary feel. But most importantly, to me anyway, is that a skilled designer can use art and antiques to further craft the story behind the design itself, making it a unique way to share that story, which is exclusive to their clients, can't be duplicated. That's what many, if not most, clients are looking for now, right? So we're going to get into this with a deep dive into the world of design, art, and antiques with designer and founder of the Manhattan firm A-List Interiors, Anel Gandelman. If you've been listening to Convo by Design for a while now, you have heard me tell you about Article. Great style. Really, it's as simple as that with Article. Things have been challenging for design professionals and their clients for, what, two years, two plus years now? Y you know this already. What you might not know is that it doesn't have to be if you're looking for exceptionally beautiful modern furniture. Article provides a simple and easy way to creating a beautiful modern space because Article works direct with their manufacturers on production of unique and stunning pieces. Then they work directly by providing this well-crafted design directly to you. This direct relationship means you aren't wondering where your furniture is and you're getting it for an incredible value. What could possibly be better than that? In many cases, the shipping is flat rate, which means no surprises right? Even more, their culture and service are rooted in their core values. Customer obsession, doing it differently, ownership mindset, winning together. If you're a designer, architect, or residential developer, you must check out their trade program. Discounts, special support, and exclusive perks. Article has the beautiful modern furniture you're looking for at an incredible price, at an incredible value, and you need to check them out. Check out article.com, or if you go to the show notes, there is a specific link which will take you, if you're in the trade, directly to their trade program. You have to see it to really believe it. Thank you, Article. And I'm sorry, I had to, you know what's funny? Sometimes the greatest conversations happen before I hit record. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's so well, true. Well, that's Murphy's Law, actually, right? Well, at least, no, Murphy's Law would, well, no, I guess that's true. But yeah. I at least I remember to hit record. So that's a good thing. 
because that's happened. Have a nice chat, and it'd be fine. yeah, yeah, and that has happened before, actually. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's unfortunate. You will, you know, sometimes you wind up having such a great conversation with somebody that you just sort of shut the world out and you forget what you're doing. Right. I try not to let that happen anymore, but that des- definitely has happened. <laughs> and we were talking about, you know, sort of the the way that this conversation started was, you know, sin- I don't think I've ever said this before on the show. So this is good. I don't think I've ever talked about this. Um, okay. I don't send questions out to guests. You didn't get questions from me. You didn't get a through line. You didn't, you don't no. know, you don't know what we're talking about. Um, I've been doing the show for eight years. And in that time, I've never sent out questions. There are some, and that's because of my background of uh, doing interviews for Playboy. You know, when I have a conversation with somebody like you, like if I didn't like what you do, mm-hmm. I wouldn't invite you on the show. Right. I mean, it makes sense. I'm, I'm happy, as I mentioned before, that there weren't any questions to prepare for, because then I think I do start getting all, uh, you know, I have to do my homework. I have to prepare because <laughs> I, I do like to be prepared just in general. So this actually takes um, the edge off and makes me feel more relaxed. And I, you know, and I also think it's great that, um, we can see each other that this is a, a zoom call. I know it's yeah. going to be a podcast, but at least I'm not talking to some other random person on the other side of the phone and I can see your eyes and it just, it feels much more comfortable. So. Yeah. Well, and I also, I use the video. I don't publish the whole video, but I will use segments, you know, as it relates to, to certain topics um, that I think are, are, you know, sometimes if it goes to LinkedIn for, for a, something mm-hmm. that des- designers could definitely learn from or something like that. Um, one of the things that I was really excited to talk to you about, and I, I wanted to sort of lead off with this is you, you, you run this dual path as designer and gallerist. And I, I wanted to start with the gallery, if that's okay. We can. Um, I mean, I don't currently have a gallery. I um, used to have an actual brick and mortar gallery. If I function more now as an art consultant, but I can tell you my my well, story if you'd like. So hang on. I do want to. So and sorry that it, while that's correct, I kind of view once a gallerist, always a gallerist. Okay. So I don't. It's not about having a brick and mortar because, to be quite honest with you. I don't know that that really matters in any business anymore. Well, the pandemic has totally changed everyone's perspective. Yeah, yeah. But even before that, like, okay, take Apple, for example, Mm -hmm. right? You know, all of, I'm an, I'm an Apple guy, right? So I've, I've been, I've been using pretty much exclusively Apple products for probably, I want to say the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I've never gone to a store to buy a new Apple product. If I get my phone, it comes through the, fo- through the phone company and they send it to me. I don't go there. If I get a new Mac, I generally buy it online. That's really funny because I always go to the Apple store. For some reason, I want it then and I, I don't want to wait. And um, I, you know, th- there's always the new ones that come out. I want to see what the colors are. So <laughs> maybe I'm just old school. <laughs> no, but regardless, I think having that option is great, but it's not mandatory. And I think especially with something like art, 
you know, galleries are great. You would probably be able to tell me what percentage of people who buy art necessarily buy them in the gallery for the gallery say like go That's shopping to really the gallery changed That's yeah. changed a lot and even when i had a brick and mortar gallery a lot of times people would reach out to me um and i would bring artwork into their homes as opposed to them coming to the physical gallery space because i would have an exhibition um that was you know one artist at the time but i had other things in inventory um, and I also did a lot of art fairs, um, but it was very common to bring things to people, which is really how I started to bridge that gap between being a gallerist or art consultant and an interior designer. Um, so you're right. I mean, you don't need to have a brick and mortar store. And I, I think um, now with websites like Artsy, it also feels more comfortable. And as younger people are collecting, they feel more comfortable buying things, um, you know, off a website and they have protections where they can see it in their home first and return it if it, it's not what they thought it would be. So I think it's more and more that's gonna be the future, I think, of art sales. I think art is one of those aspects to design that really <clears throat> confuses people most. I think it's what they're most afraid of. You know, like if if I like if I love the um, the Roche Bobois Mahjong sectional, mm -hmm. if right. I love that sofa, I know exactly what it is. <laughs> it is ex incredibly expensive, but you know what you you know what it is. Mm -hmm. the the comfort you don't necessarily have to go do a sit test to know that that's for you but you definitely have to like the aesthetic you have to like the way it looks you have to like the lines you have to like the color you have to like and there's a there's an intrinsic value to it right right but when it comes to art art is so different because you're you're not looking at something saying okay well that's a roche mahjong sectional i i can get it at the showroom and it'll be delivered. When it comes to art, it's like, I really love that piece of art. It's a half a million dollars. Mm -hmm. That's that's an investment, a sizable investment. It's something that is both design and an investment. And there's more to it than do I just like looking at it. At the same time, you can go to a flea market or a local farmer's market, find a local artist, and say, I really like that. Now you may like that, but that's not an investment necessarily. It could be. But art doesn't have to be an investment. And I think, um, you know, there's different reasons that people collect art. Yes, if you're buying a painting that's half a million dollars, then that's an investment and you really need to do your homework. You need to be educated and you should work with an art consultant to make sure that it is a sound investment, um, that someone's not just trying to pull the wool over your eyes because at that point you can use your art as assets you know as collateral if you want to um get a loan or i mean they're real assets just like owning real estate um if you but it's a totally different thing than if you're buying art because you want to buy it to enjoy it and live with it and at that point i think if you see something at a flea market and it speaks to you in some way it brings you some joy then i mean i think that's just as valid it's just a different way of approaching it um 
And it's an interesting conversation that I have with clients all the time because I think people are afraid of artwork because they're not familiar with it. If you didn't grow up with a lot of original artwork and your parents weren't collectors, it's this very scary thing. Um, and a lot of people don't get it and they don't understand why people spend so much money on artwork. But I think if people start collecting, start going to galleries and art fairs, and the more they see and the more they learn, you, you uh, create that or you, um, you learn that appreciation, you hone your eye. And I think it just starts to click after a while um, and you, you start to understand that it, it brings it brings more to your home, to your space, to your workplace, um, because otherwise it can be very one note. It, it just adds this other, whether it sparks a conversation with a guest or whether you just like to look at it and gives you um, like a, you know, a feeling of peace or um, some people will have a connotation to a piece of artwork and it will remind them of a memory. And it's just, I think all those, there's so many reasons to love art from the aesthetics to just the way it makes you feel to the investment potential of it. Um, people just need to be educated more. And I, I don't think that people talk about it in, in schools. Um, you really have to seek out that art education. And I want to get back to art in a minute. Um, specifically when I start, I'm, I'm going to go through some of the images of your work and I wanted to walk through some of your projects with you. Okay. And we can talk about art at that point too. I wanted to back up a little bit and I'm, I'm a sucker for a really good origin story. I love learning how people like you started doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, well, I always think it's so funny because when you're, a teenager or you're preparing for college you think you're going to have this linear path and I mean everybody knows like past the age of 30 there's nothing linear to anyone's path um I I was born and raised in South Africa and I um was always interested in art um I was doing a lot of painting and art history in high school um, I was interested in architecture and I actually thought that that's what I was going to do. So I even did drafting classes. Um, but I knew that in South Africa, we just didn't have, we just didn't have the history that Europe and America did as far as art. Well, I guess America uh, is a shorter history, but they have a lot of wonderful museums and, and New York is obviously at the forefront of art and design. And I felt like if this was something that I was really serious about, I needed to pursue it in one of these capitals, whether it was Paris, London, or New York. Um, I was lucky to be able to get a visa because that's a tricky thing that non-Americans are blissfully unaware of. Um, I was lucky to get a visa to work at an ad agency because I thought I would study fine arts painting and become an art director actually. Uh, because I never wanted to be a fine artist and have that solitary experience. I wanted to be in a more um, commercial or corporate space, working with other people, and I guess getting feedback from other people, um, something that was more um, practical, I guess. So I came to the US, I went to Chicago, I worked at this ad agency, um, creating presentations for 
Disney and things like that and applied to art school, ended up at Parsons School of Design. And um, while I was there, I still thought I was going to go into fine arts painting, but I started to see how computers were becoming much more important um, in the world of advertising. Um, so I switched my major, went into graphic design. And then from there, I ended up not going into graphic design. I was an intern at a company called Dwell Studio when they were just starting up. Um, and I have to credit my uh, old boss, Christiane Lemieux, who has gone on to do amazing things. But she really, she was so inspirational. Um, and while I was working with her, we did a lot of textile design. We developed a lot of soft home furnishings. And so I got a lot of experience from the the production side of interiors. And then we also did a lot of like art directing for photo shoots and things like that. Um, and I learned how a small business works and how to interact with clients. And I just thought it was um, a really good fit for me. But at a certain point, her company was growing and I felt like as I was growing with the company, it was all about meetings and spreadsheets and it was just getting too corporate and I missed art. I missed um the creative side of things and so i went and i did a graduate program with sotheby's institute of art which was great because we focused on fine art but also american decorative arts and um contemporary art so it was a little bit of everything really because we traveled a third of the year we went to amazing um amazing period homes. We were at the Met every Monday. We, we uh, would have classes with um, Jerry Saltz, who was the art critic at the Village Voice at the time. And it was really a, an amazing experience. After that, I decided that I was going to open up an art gallery. I was very excited about emerging artists. Um, and I opened up my art gallery in 2000 and 2007. Seven. Yeah. So as everyone knows, well, in 2007, it was great. I opened my doors. I was selling lots of paintings. Uh, everyone was buying art at the time. Everyone was excited about emerging art. And then we all know what happened. And suddenly people stopped buying art. And that's when I really had to go the extra mile and do events that were sort of out of the box and not just be in the gallery and then also take artwork into people's homes and as i started doing that it's very strange to me but people will spend thousands of dollars on wallpaper without a complaint but with artwork you really have to work so hard um to, because you you have to have a visceral response and so as i was doing that i found that people were asking me more and more for help with interiors because they knew of my design background and that started to take off um i ended up closing the gallery um in 2010 and started doing primarily art fairs um around the country toronto la um because you would get a lot of people who were really interested in buying art at those um, and then continued with the interior side of things and realized that I needed to 
I needed to make a decision of what I was going to focus on because I couldn't be running two different businesses at the same time because they were not going, I couldn't make them both successful. Um, and so I decided to go into um, interior design full time, but knowing that I would incorporate my experience as a gallerist, as, as an art consultant and bring that to my clients. Um, and so in 2012, Adis Interiors was born and um, here we are today. <laughs> it, it's, it's fascinating because like you, when you say, I started, <clears throat> I started in 2007 and then in 2008, well, everybody knows what happens. It's hard to realize that as long ago as that was now, mm-hmm. not, not everybody realizes what happened. And I, because what I think is fascinating about it is 2008, 2009, major recession, Mm -hmm. financial collapse, total contraction in the economy. When there is a contraction like that in the economy, it directly affects what we do, right? Whether, Whether you're on the art side or the design side or the journalism side, because it affects the whole industry. And what happened after that was all of these individuals who, who were displaced from their other careers or jobs or you know whatever it was that they were doing, many found them their, their way into the arts and into design. And mm-hmm. that's when you had this huge influx of talent into the space. So cut to you know 10 years, 12 years, 13 years later, those people who started brand new in 2009, 2010, Mm-hmm. have now been, you know, they've been in the game for a while and they're hitting their peak. They're hitting a really high level. Well, especially this year, it's sort of the peak of peaks. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Which is why I wanted to ask you, what what has changed for you and your business this year? How have, how have you adapted and adopted new technology, new skills, what you needed to do to change the way that you do it? And, and by the way, Thank goodness you don't currently have a brick and mortar gallery. You would have gotten crushed. I do have a brick and mortar office though. <laughs> that Fair enough. Has turned into a storage because we're only there um, like probably once a week. Um, I hired a, a another designer to work with me, and I think pre pandemic I would have had to be in the office every day. But now I don't see the need. I'm, you know, I tell her if she wants to do drawings at home, do them at home. And then we just meet at meetings and when we need to do whatever we need to do in the office. And so that's completely changed. But um, this year has been interesting because in one of the things that I had to really um, sit down and, and figure out was taking on new business and not growing myself out of business because there was a moment in time where I kept getting new inquiries and I wasn't paying attention to how much work was really coming in or how much we were saying yes to, because in the past, it somehow always balanced out where we'd get inquiries, we'd send some proposals, we'd win some, we'd lose some, and it was just a steady amount of work. And then this year we were sending proposals, more people were saying yes. And then suddenly we ended up with all these projects and I was like, oh my goodness, what, what have I done? (laughs) Uh, So we had to put on the brakes and now it's trying to figure out how we, um, we manage this pipeline 
and also so that we don't turn away projects that we're excited about, but don't take on so many that we're, you know, dropping the ball on every project and then just, you know, not doing what we want to do because I really feel like the most important part of my business is providing a concierge level service to my clients as much as possible, um, which is also something that's very difficult and stresses me out this year is I cannot control everything that's happening with the supply chain. And I feel like the way I normally used to deliver projects and the, no the way I used to, you know, I'd tell clients things were coming at a certain date, we were going to install everything and create this beautiful turnkey space for them. Now, through no fault of my own, I have to constantly tell them, oh, this is delayed, this, you know, was lost, or this, um, you know, they have a shortage of fill in the blank from foam to metal to shipping containers. And I, I find that very frustrating. So on top of having all this new work, we also have all this new hassle of following up on these orders, which is, you know, something that we, we're also trying to manage because it's not the type of thing that we had to deal with in the past. I mean, obviously certainly things used to get delayed, but now it's just crazy. Yeah. And I'm, cu I, I'm curious about this. How do you insulate yourself from a business standpoint? You know, you put a proposal out there based mm -hmm. on the business, your design work comes, you know, through a formula that you've crafted, created and lived by over the years, how you're going to, whatever your business model is, if it's, if it's retainer plus, if it's flat fee plus, if it's whatever it happens to be, you know your business model. Well, a year ago, sorry, two years ago, you weren't necessarily tracking down every single piece of inventory that was required for the design work. You weren't spending two hours over time tracking down. Maybe it was one email for five minutes saying, exactly. hey, what's the delivery? You get it. Now, now you have to, you have this new calculus whereby you're calculating what your hourly is not because it's on the design, but because it's on the follow-up and follow-through, how does that change the business model for you? And how does that change the proposal? Well, the uh, projects that we have um, furniture coming in for right now, we took those on before we knew about all these supply chain issues. So we work on a flat fee and I, I guess we're losing money on all this time spent following up on orders. I mean, we have crazy things going on where we're sending video footage to shippers showing that they they didn't deliver something when they said they did. And I mean, it's uh, cuckoo. <laughs> it's not just sending emails saying, oh, send me the tracking number. Um, but any new projects, we've basically had to first set new expectations and tell the clients, you know, in the past, we provided this very, um, turnkey experience and it was um you know like a big reveal but we're not able to do that right now and i don't want to hold anyone's furniture hostage just because we're waiting for a few pieces so it's not ideal and i don't think it's as exciting for clients when things come in drips and drabs but i mean we don't know when everything's coming in so we just have to do it that way 
But what we also do is we factor in this extra administrative time of um, having to track things down. I hope it's not going to last. Um, and I do have someone who is dedicated to doing that every day. So it's not me, but sometimes I have to jump in and I, I prefer commuting, communicating with um, the clients because I have a very intimate relationship with them. And I think that's how we build trust. And so if I'm going to deliver bad news about something that's delayed, then I'm not going to have someone who works for me do that. So um, it's a process. <laughs> you are listening to my conversation with A-List Interiors founder, Anel Gandelman. We will return shortly. But first, this from an amazing and treasured design partner. For well over a year now, you have been hearing incredible conversations, interviews, and panels with amazing creative talent as part of our Wellness and Design Thought Leadership series presented by Thermosol. It has been and continues to be an absolute joy working with the entire team at Thermosol from the top down. This multi-generational family business has been producing the gold standard in steam generators, saunas, steam showers, and steam shower accessories for decades. Thermosol is the original steam shower with technology that is state-of-the-art, made and manufactured in the United States. The company's history with steam showers started by David Altman in 1958. Murray Altman acquired Thermosol's steam bath division in 1989, and the company is now led by Mitch Altman from their world-class production facility in Round Rock, Texas. The most successful designers and architects are using steam showers to maximize wellness, relaxation, and enjoyment for their clients. Thermosol is a staunch advocate for the design trade, and I am so proud to have them as a presenting partner of Convo by Design and the Wellness and Design Thought Leadership Series. If not familiar with the entire range of Thermosol products, please check out thermosol.com. Thank you, Thermosol. Back to my conversation with Anel Gandelman of Manhattan design firm, A-List Interiors. One of the things that was always so cool, the idea of the reveal, right? Mm -hmm. And you can't do a reveal necessarily in dribs and drabs. Nope. Have you, have you ideated, thought about ways to replace that with something else? Is there another option? How do you, how do, you do that? I think the only thing that we can do is tell people that we need to start ordering things eight months in advance. We have a project right now that uh, is scheduled to be completed. It's under construction in the Hamptons in February. Everything has already been ordered and we're just hoping that by February, everything should have come in. <laughs> I, you know, maybe one or two pieces, but um, we're, I still think that that is the best best way to deliver a project because otherwise it, you just, your value as a designer, you, you become like a, I don't know, there's less of a special source, I suppose. Well, let me ask you this. Does that not beg the question, now have you found a new use for your brick and mortar office? Oh. Also, also storage unit. I, and, and I say that I say that half tongue in cheek um, because I'm wondering, look, I, from what I'm hearing, this this backlog, this disruption in the supply chain isn't going to clear before third quarter of 2023. That is what I've 
that's what I've been told by many, many people. And that's, that seems to be, you know, just clearing out the inventory now. And when I say clearing, I don't mean that's when your inventory is going to get there. I mean, that's when we're going to get back to some sense of normalcy. You know, that's when. I'm, I'm concerned that people are going to become used to this. And then whether it's shipping companies or manufacturers, as opposed to shortening lead times, which the industry was really pushing for, they'll think that, oh, you know, people, people were fine waiting 24 weeks for a sofa. So why not continue that way? It's, it's interesting that you say that. I, I don't think that's the conventional wisdom out there right now. I think, I think the shipping companies understand logistics and the I want it now mentality, specifically mm-hmm. of, of the American clientele. And I think that because of that, you know, in talking to a lot of designers, I am, I am amazed what I'm seeing the design community working on now. They've taken this idea where, okay, if I can't get new, mm-hmm. what can I salvage? What can I salvage and, and reimagine with different materials? Maybe I keep the counters. Maybe we're going to get new counters, but maybe I keep the counters and then I just get a gorgeous slab mm-hmm. to, to completely reinvent the countertops. Um, the idea of vintage and antique, maybe there's this idea, look, I mean, just because antique is something that's over 100 years old, right? Right. But it doesn't mean it was good. No, it, <laughs> it could be terrible. It's just really old and somehow managed to survive. You know, I have this feeling like one day, and it's not to pick on Ikea, but you know, you're going to have one of these Ikea dressers, which will, somehow will have has survived a hundred years. And all of a sudden it's an antique, but the idea spray painting it a uh, high glass lacquer. <laughs> exactly. And I, I feel like somehow, some way, you know, what this, what these designers are doing. And I'm curious if this is, if you're finding this as well, is you're taking this idea of salvaged um, vintage antique and continuously, you know, now you're picking again and starting to, in in addition to, I spoke to somebody yesterday in the, in the Midwest who's opened up a series of workrooms. I don't think, I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. Well, I think what we've started doing is, um, when we specify furniture is keeping it to a core group of vendors who we know are delivering. And a lot of them are more local. So we have some people in Brooklyn, some people um, in Connecticut who are furniture makers so that I have more control where I can actually go send a white glove delivery truck to just pick it up and don't need to rely on a big freight company. Um, so that's definitely been something we do a lot of custom upholstery, um, and have been trying to keep that close to home. And I've tried to avoid things that are coming from outside of the U S just because of customs and port delays. Um, we, we love using vintage and antique furniture, but that's a very specific. Um, so some clients are very open to it. We just photographed a lovely project yesterday where there's tons of vintage and antiques. And we really reimagined a lot of the pieces. We reupholstered things um, and it was great, but not everybody just like with artwork appreciates a vintage piece or an antique piece. Um, some people just don't like the idea that it, somebody else used it or um, 
they don't like that it's in pristine condition. So we have to just follow our client's lead when it comes to that. And I understand that. And by the way, I have to laugh a little bit. The idea that somebody else used it. So every house <laughs> you live in is going to be brand new stick built. I well, it's it's hyperbole. I get it, but I, mean, I know, so- I know. But you know what's so crazy is we when we deliver furniture, sometimes there's a nick or a scratch and it could be tiny. You wouldn't even notice it if I didn't point it out to you, but we always make sure that we have someone, a furniture doctor come out and fix it so that it's perfect. But because some clients are very particular, but it's only because it was delivered new and they want it to be perfect. But then when their kids come around and scratch it, nick it, that's totally fine. So it's, it's hard to uh, rationalize that. Yeah, no, I totally get it. Uh, but, I, but I do think it's interesting. And, and specifically to your point about now you're looking at in-country exclusively. Mm-hmm. Because of that, I think the shipping companies are going to try to figure out the manufacturers, the raw supplier, the raw material suppliers are going to figure out as quickly as humanly possible how to fix it. Because, Mm -hmm. I mean, you tell me, once you develop habits professionally, personally, they're hard to break. That's true. But I guess that we need to have a critical mass. So I don't know if everyone is doing that. I mean, personally, I prefer uh, pieces that come out of America because for the most part, they're just better quality. It's more sustainable. You know, we're not trucking things um, across country if we don't need to. Um, but I don't know if I'm in the minority or if a lot of designers are doing this. But I think, you know, you'll just be pushed into that if your local suppliers are able to deliver on time, then you'll just naturally go to them first. Yeah, agreed. Wanted to just do, do a brief walk through some of your projects. And if I, I'm on the website, and by the way, um, one of the things I love to do is, so I'm on the website, you can join me if you want to look on your website, if you don't remember each individual project. But if you're listening to the podcast, because it is a podcast, um, go to the show notes, and you will find a link to a list interiors. And you can walk through some of these projects with us, which I've always found this to be a really fun process. Uh, especially, you know, listener is, is going through in real time at their house and they can look at the specific things that we're talking about. And you and I are doing it at the same time. Mm-hmm. I wanted to start with, uh, a kitchen, which with historic Heathcote. Okay. Let me just pull that up. I'm on my Instagram so much. I'm actually not on my website a lot. So it's been a while. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I totally get it. Okay. Um, by the way, I love your presentation on your website because you don't just show one picture of a project. You'll, you'll actually take a series of pictures and it feels like it's a, it's a photographic walkthrough. And I love that. I think that that's really cool. I, is, that, is that the artistic side of you that well, you want to give I- it a full picture each of our projects are so different. Some designers have a very specific style, uh, but if you look through our website, we have a very contemporary home in Greenwich. I mean, 
super contemporary. And then we have a very traditional home in um, the Hudson Valley and then everything in between. So I think it's important to show the entire home. Um, and I, I think then it also tells a little bit of a story, um, much like reading an article in a magazine or um, a book, but not every room is going to be as wow as the other. And I don't think that in a house that is the way you should design, I think you should have these really special moments and then some places where you breathe. And I think when you walk through the photographs, um, I approach it in the same way. Yeah, I love that. So with this project, Historic Heathcote, I wanna, where is this? Uh, this is in Scarsdale. It's okay. about 15 miles north of Manhattan. It's a suburb. Okay. So I want to start in the kitchen. Okay. And my there's a couple of things. First, first impression, a couple of things. The use of mixed metals mm -hmm. against a white palette, I think is really interesting. And I, I love how it's done. I, I feel like when it comes to mixed metals, I still think there's just so much fear from many designers. And it's, it, it seems to be a range. It's not good, bad, new, old. It's just a thing. Some still have a real issue with the compatibility and being able to, to sort of work the mixed metal. And I think you did that beautifully here. The other thing, and what I wanted to drill down on specifically is the tiling and the backsplash because I, I feel like in the last five or six years, the backsplash and additional tiling, not backsplash, but other cabinetry um, between the uppers and the, and the countertop mm -hmm. has just exploded. Behind the range on this one, you did something really interesting that I really don't recall seeing before like this is you, you go from, and correct me if I'm wrong, because maybe I'm the angles off, but you go from a herringbone a, a yeah. really a beautiful thin herringbone into a slab on the yes. wall. And I can't really tell how that, what the product is on the, on the countertop, but I think it was just beautifully done. Thank you. I mean, that has a functional purpose as well. So when you're cooking, um, grout is a little hard to clean if you have a lot of oils that are, that you're cooking with. Um, so we didn't want to do an entire slab for the backsplash. We wanted some interest, especially because this home has a lot of traditional details. And I think when you do a slab, it, it feels more contemporary. But at the same time, we wanted to have this single piece behind uh, the range just to, for easy cleaning, essentially. Uh, but I also think that it breaks up the pattern of that backsplash tile and I think makes the space, it, it makes it a little less busy and gives your eye a place to rest. I really do approach each interior like a painting. And that's, I think, because of all my painting classes and art history classes. So I'm very much into composition and, you know, re repeating shapes, repeating colors, focal points. But I mean, I think it's the same thing, whether it's a room or a piece of artwork. Yeah, well, it's interesting, too, because when you say that and the composition, that is something that I think you do absolutely beautifully. 
And it's not just what was designed in, it's also what you use to stage it for the photography. Oh, and well, and as people, <laughs> it is a whole other thing. And as people go through this with us, I want you to notice specifically, notice, notice the accessorizing, notice the staging of the photography, I think it's beautifully done. You also show this other angle, which is straight ahead on uh, through the sink, through the island to the, to the backsplash wall. And again, the, the metals, the, the yellow metals break it up, whereas the silver metals kind of disappear into it mm -hmm. a little bit. And, and I just think, I think it was beautifully done. What was the client, what was the request? Do you remember what was the desired effect from the kitchen in particular? Because I've often found that the, the kitchen and bath requests are different from the overall design. Sometimes they're always a little bit specialized. Was that the case here or what was the request? Well, this client is a very big cook. So one of her biggest requests was that it was super durable and very functional, which is not always the sexiest design directive because the durable materials are not always the prettiest. Right. Um, but in this case, she also, we, we took a, a an older home added an addition and we wanted to keep some of the historic details, but also make it updated and feel more fresh and modern. And so in the kitchen, a couple of the things that we did um, that make the space functional also make it feel more inviting and um, just it achieves both goals. So the Island is a stain on a rift cut oak, which is really durable when it comes to scratches, but also gives you this lovely warmth against the white cabinets. Um, and we wanted to do a white kitchen because it's just timeless. I know people talk about, you know, green kitchens are the thing this year, but I'm not sure in 10 years, I don't think anyone's going to be into a green kitchen, but a white kitchen, I, I just think it, it's something that'll last a lot longer, um, but we also don't want it to be boring, right? So um, the mixed metals also came out of functionality where we didn't want to use brass on the faucet because it, it just, she didn't like the patina of the brass um, in a space where it gets so much use. Um, so we used a satin nickel finish, which ties in very nicely with the stainless steel appliances. So you don't even realize um, that it's different from the hardware and the lighting. Um, and then with, again, with the backsplash behind the range, as I said before, we did that for functionality, but I think it works really well with the backsplash tile where we brought in some visual interest and then the um, counters are all uh, a quartz material so she can really go to town and not worry about it super super durable really mm -hmm. hard material yeah um the, the next image i just want to i want to shuffle over to what would be tantamount to the living room and i, I want to do this here where you're looking straight at the fireplace with the artwork on the wall because i think this speaks to your roots in art and art mm -hmm. curation you've got this You've got this room, and again, it's it's style and scale, and you've got these two beautiful arch doors, and then you've got a fireplace, very subtle in, in the color palette, and then you've got a beautiful piece. Just And the thing that really strikes me is the, the juxtaposition between the 
the light palette, the framing as it is between the fireplace, that the fireplace and the two arch doors with the columns, it seems to be, it seems to have been made like a frame for this particular piece of, of art. <laughs> and I just love how everything comes to, comes together. What is the piece and what's the significance behind it? Uh, that piece was actually in the client's collection before they hired us. And I love when clients already come with original artwork because that means um, they'll be open to collecting more. And I, a lot of times a room can be really pretty and beautiful, but until you add that artwork, it doesn't really come alive. Um, and somehow decorative artwork doesn't do the same thing. I'm not sure if it's because you don't see the um, sort of the artist's hand in it, or maybe it's just not as good because it's mass produced. I'm not sure. But this piece, they had it. And um, when we approach a design project, we're always inventorying, inventorying, sorry, having a hard time saying that word. <laughs> um, the client's existing pieces that they want to incorporate. Um, obviously letting them know if we think something's going to work and then trying to find the best place for those pieces. And this was really a, a happy coincidence that the scale of this piece was right. Um, and then we, we designed this room with a soft palette. And I don't know if you can see in the website, but it does have some soft green accents in it. If you looked at the mm. textiles up close and you stand in the space and that was really inspired by that green marble in the fireplace. And then we just loved how the traditional fireplace is juxtaposed against a more, it's not quite abstract, but abstracted painting. Um, it's just a very um, striking pairing, we thought. And the, the symmetry of the arch doorways. I love symmetry. Um, so this made me very happy. I, I bet. So I want to jump from that one to your uh, Greenwich Contemporary. Okay. Because it's really interesting to me that there You're are enough. Right? No. No? That know that there are some through lines that I find absolutely fascinating. So a little backstory. So I've said this, I've said this probably so many times that as, as I say it again, you can have people who, who regularly listen to the podcast. I can hear their eyes rolling back. It's like, oh, not again. <laughs> Here's the theory. The theory is, and it goes back to when I first started the podcast, I would ask this very pedestrian question. Tell me your favorite style. You know, what's your favorite style? What do, how do you, do, what's your design style? What's your aesthetic? And it's not a stupid question. It's just a pedestrian question because really great creatives, you know, an artist, you look at Picasso. He had work that was nothing like other work and they go through periods and they go through mm -hmm. timelines in their lives. And sometimes things are vastly different, but there's always a through line. There are always, there's always a fingerprint in their work where you can look at it and say, oh, that's, that's, I can see the, I can see there's some consistency in mm -hmm. thought or style or performative aspect to what they do. So I wanted to, to point this out because it's really interesting. This particular project is vastly different from right. the other one, but there are some really interesting through lines. I'm looking at the bathroom, the master bath 
I guess it's a master bath. There's a tub and a shower. And I'm looking at this beautiful white herringbone, which is now on the floor. And it, it breaks up what would be ordinarily, I think, a, a, a very um, overly white, I think. Sterile? I don't want to say sterile because I don't feel like it's sterile. It would just be very monochromatic. Um, mm -hmm. But what it does is the texture with the herringbone, I feel like it completely breaks up that, that monochromatic element to it. And you get, it, at least for me, it, it drew the eye to other details in the space. And I think that that's really cool. And then jumping over to the kitchen, this is a totally different kitchen. But for me, when I look at it, I see certain things, certain aspects to it. And, you know, as I look at it, maybe mm -hmm. it's the staging, maybe it's the composition. Um, maybe, but you know, the composition is always the photographer who, well, it was the same photographer. So maybe she has a, <laughs> a specific uh, style of photographing things. I mean, I do think that there is a through line, as you say, I think, um, but I've always had trouble explaining that in words. I, sometimes I say there's a tailored aesthetic, but when you're when it's contemporary, it's not really tailored. Um, that even in our very traditional projects, it's not overly stuffed. But I, I really, if you come up with a way to describe my aesthetic, that would be great. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that because I look, I'm I'm all for removing labels. Okay. I want to remove every label possible because I think I think labels are you know uh, unnecessary. But and it's funny because when you were when you were talking about the green kitchen, you know when you say green kitchen and that's sort of like the color, the flavor of the month, the color mm -hmm. of the year. I think look four words for you: avocado and harvest gold. Yeah. Need I need I say more? Because you know what? In thirty years, they may say, "Oh well," in the you know in the twenty twenties, they went through this green kitchen phase. So, <laughs> if you like it, then do it. If you don't like it, but you're doing it because someone else says it's what you should be doing, mm -hmm. uh, buyer beware, you know. But, you know, with this particular kitchen, as I'm looking at the image, first of all, I love the pendants. I love the fixtures. I love the lighting. It's, I think, you know, as I was going back to the, to the other design, while this is completely different, it still, to me, seems like a completely workable, functionable, functional kitchen. Well, that they do have in common. This woman... They have a very large family and when they come over they have 30 people at a time so mm. this island is enormous um so that she can basically lay out this crazy buffet and they're using they're using the island they're using the dining table which is also like 12 feet long they're using the kitchen table um so this is also a workhorse space and i'm going to jump now to what i'm going to imagine is a den or a, or a cozy seating area with a gray wall with the, is that fabric on the wall with that texture? And again, the, the composition here between the, the lighting, the lamps that you have, the sofa in the middle, and then that artwork, which is, it's, it's almost as though you created a canvas for the canvas. And so I, I really just, I love the composition and the styling behind it. Thank you. So this space is um, what we, call the grown-up space these people have uh two daughters although one is going to college so maybe she's a grown-up soon um but it has a bar which if you flip to one of the other images there is a bar that's to the right of um 
the the seating arrangement and okay. it's really it's it's this house when the clients purchased it it used to be some crazy party house in the 80s i mean it had like sunken tubs for multiple people and had the latest and greatest in av in 1985 um the bar was also sunken um so it's sprawling and really made for parties and so this room we obviously removed the sunken bar uh and created this more masculine space um you know, not quite a man cave because it's we don't have any leather recliners in here, but uh, something a little bit more chic um, that is in that sort of like hotel lounge bar vibe. And what is the significance behind the art? It's just um, a great abstract piece. Um, also, the clients had this piece, so um, we incorporated it into the space because it had that um, black and white palette. And so we kept everything else with the charcoals and the light grays um, and kept it very masculine in that way. It's just funny. I was, I was half expecting you to say, oh no, it's just something we picked it from Z Gallery. Ah. <laughs> which I know would never happen, but I think it, you know, I, I kind of had this like, oh, what is the significance behind the art? Oh, we picked it up from Z Gallery, it was easy. I don't know that this is any important artist. I think this is just something the clients purchased, you know, because I, I'm sure it's under $10,000, um, but some some artists, they they like their, their work. The only follow-up I have to, to this particular project is that I simply love it. Oh, at the at, at the same time, would not mind it if they did bring back a sunken living room or a sunken <laughs> bar. I'm, it was I'm very a, Austin Powers, I'm telling you. <laughs> you know what, though? There's something to that. Like, when I think of that, I think of late 60s Palm Springs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this, uh, this house was originally designed by someone named Norman Jaffe. So it, yeah, okay. it, it does have some... Um, historic roots, but uh, someone came in there who was definitely a party boy. And I mean, I was expecting to find, you know, a bathrobe or something, Hugh Hefner, like <laughs> when we first walked in. Well, did you bust through the walls? We did actually. And nothing? Um, I don't know. I wasn't there during the demolition. They sort of did the walkthrough before they busted everything. And then after it was all cleaned up, but we completely relocated the kitchen. The kitchen okay. was where the current dining room is. And we also adjusted the flow of this house. And there were a lot of curved walls that we needed to eliminate. We kept a few as a nod to the past, but it was just too specific. And that's the problem with a very contemporary home is it does date very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you, Anel, for, for taking the time here. This was so much fun. I really appreciate the time. I love the walkthrough and I love talking about it. And I absolutely love your work. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Um, it's, this was really like just chatting to a, a friend or a colleague. So I think whatever you're doing, it's great. And I'm a big fan of podcasts. Um, I listen to them in the car all the time and you will be on my regular listening schedule. <laughs>
Awesome. Love it. Thank you. Thanks again. Thank you, Anel. I truly appreciate the time. Love the chat. Thank you, Thermosol, Article, York Wall Coverings, and Franz Wigner for your partnership. You are remarkable partners and amazing allies for the trade. And thank you for listening. Remember why you do what you do and that the business of design is about making better the lives of those we serve, right? Until next week, be well and take today first.